Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, following up on our spiritualism episodes, we're looking at seances and what goes on. But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on? Well, I'm going to be at Gen Con, um, Gen Con 2023, for those listening in the future. And I've got a couple of things lined up that I'm participating in. One is a panel on horror on the tabletop, it's entitled. That's on Friday at 1pm in the Crown Plaza. And on the Thursday evening, I'm going to be running a Call of Cthulhu game with the U2 Can Cthulhu group. And it's going to be Full Fathom 5.5, which is kind of like Full Fathom 5, but I might do some extra things that I haven't thought of yet. <laughs> Full Fathom 5. Or it could be Full Fathom 6. But that doesn't alliterate so well. Full Fathom 50 if you're going really the whole hog. Yeah. Seriously sunken 6. Those of you that have been keeping an eye on our Patreon feed and also on the Misconic repository will notice, say, slow and steady uh, or rather not so slow and steady release mm. of the back issues of the blasphemous tome so all of our issues one through ten and our previously digital only issues which were previously 4.5 and 5.5 now renamed 4b and 5b so it makes it clear that they're reissues as much as anything else are now up on the misconic repository for all to see yay if you wish to get a copy of the Blasphemous Tome Issue 6, the PDF is now free and available to all our Patreon backers, as are all of the back issues, as Matt said. And anyone backing us on $3 or above gets a link to purchase a print-on-demand copy for a few dollars plus postage if they subscribe by the end of this month, July 2023. And all the back catalogue is available on print-on-demand. And as of the time of recording, we have, well, I was about to say just, but we're a week past the last weekend with good friends. So this, of course, is the online gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners. And it, it was a wonderful time. Uh, there were a great many games that were run over the course of the weekend. Unfortunately, I had to cancel all mine because I got sick, but I'm in the process of trying to reschedule them with the players as a way of making up for that. I managed to do, um, at least talk in one panel and moderate a couple of others, so that was a different experience for me. This is the first time a Weekend with Good Friends has had panels, and I, I do very much want to thank David, who organised them, uh, for mm. doing such a fantastic job. And if you are interested in these panels, and there were... Oh gosh, I think 11 of them over the course of the weekend. These are all now on YouTube. So I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go off and take a look at the playlist there. And we had panels that were on the art of being a great horror player, the role of humor in horror games, the role of madness in Call of Cthulhu, the psychology of horror, creating an immersive Call of Cthulhu game, incorporating real-world horrors and general RPG game mastering, for example. 
and so a wide variety of topics, but focused around Call of Cthulhu. And yes, as Matt mentioned, all three of us took part, either moderating or as panellists. What was your panel experience like, each of you? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a great time on the uh, it's on the panels I moderated. I had actually more fun. I thought it was quite, quite weird. I was expecting <laughs> it to be quite a dry, passive kind of role. But then certain people, glaring at Scott, <laughs> got me involved to answer a few of the questions. So, so yeah, I had quite a lot of fun in my one, which was the first one being the psychology of horror. Oh, yeah, I kept turning the questions around on you, didn't I? <laughs> Grr. <laughs> Yeah, it was a good, a couple of good chats. I enjoyed them, especially the art of being a great role player. That was uh, fun because I think it's always interesting to talk about it from the player's point of view. We often talk about GM advice and how it is to mm. run games, but to talk about playing them was a, a nice change. And I had a marvellous time in the couple of panels I took part in as a panellist and the couple that I moderated. But I don't think I've ever moderated a panel before. So yeah, it was an interesting experience and I hope I didn't fuck it up too badly. But, yeah, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who made a weekend with good friends happen. So, obviously, there are the convention organisers for a start. There's Chris, Benzer and, and Martin, who not only did a lot of the work putting the whole thing together in the convention programme and stuff like that, but even writing custom software to help with the game allocations and stuff like that. And to Jack, who put together the forms that people use to fill in their choices, either as a GM or as a player, and to all the moderators and volunteers on the Good Friends Discord server who helped keep the convention running smoothly, answering people's questions, helping GMs when people dropped out of games, helping people find games, helping people set up pickup games throughout the weekend. And yeah, from everything I've seen, it went absolutely smoothly. And voting is now open for the Any Awards for 2023. Voting is open until the end of this week, until the 23rd of July. And a number of things that uh, we're associated with are up for awards. So I can see that uh, How We Roll is up for Best Podcast alongside Bookshops of Arkham and Seth Skorkowski, who has also been on the, our show. And the book I worked on, Rivers of London, is up for two categories, up for Best Rules and for Product of the Year. So. Uh, if you want to vote, I would love to get your vote because it'd be great to win that, particularly for the best rules, because that was uh, something I had a, a big hand in. And finally, uh, Chaosium is up for best publisher. We'll put a link in the show, but if you just Google any nominations, any awards, you should find a link pretty readily and you can cast your votes for the games and shows of your choice. And also, Mike and I have a new podcast that uh, is being released very soon. We have a trailer out at the moment. This is a project that Mike and I discussed at Necronomicon last year. And over the last kind of, uh, well, best part of a year now, we've been working on. It's called, funnily enough, Mason and Fricker's Eldritch Stories. And season one will feature 12 short stories, half by me and half by Mike. And we alternate reading each other's stories. Yeah, it's been a very enjoyable and rewarding project so far, and I hope that people enjoy listening to it as much as uh, we've enjoyed writing and recording it. Right now, as of today, there's a trailer we've released, 
and episode one will drop soon. And you can find out more and sign up for the show at eldritchstories.com. And now on to our main topic, seances. Seances are a common element in horror fiction films. As a result, we see them turn up in the occasional Call of Cthulhu scenario. But how do actual seances compare to their presentation in popular culture? And how might we present them in our games? Our recent episodes on Victorian spiritualism touched on seances, but didn't go into too much detail. We thought it might be helpful to examine some different types of seances through first-hand accounts. Again, we're going to focus on Victorian Britain. Our main reference is Experiences in Spiritualism by Catherine Berry, published in 1876. Berry was a spiritualist who collected contemporary accounts of private and public seances. Yeah, this is a fascinating book. And having been put out in 1876, it's obviously in the public domain now. So it is available online, and I'll put a link in the show notes. It's also available in print if you prefer that. But this is, you know, as Matt just mentioned, a collection of, well, for a start, her own accounts of, of spiritualism, but also things that were written for spiritualist publications at the time, people's own accounts of seances. And honestly, if you're presenting a seance, a Victorian seance in your game, this book is the mother mode. Is about 200 pages long, and she's just packed with the most extraordinary stuff. Our previous episodes took a much more sceptical view of, of seances and spiritualism and talked about how they were faked and so on. But this is all written from the point of view of someone who believed this stuff and is seeing all these phenomena as actually happening. And that perhaps, if you're looking at presenting a seance as part of your game, might actually be more useful. So first off, let's answer the question, what? is a seance. So we've probably all seen seances in popular media, but actual seances are a bit different, however. In practice, you may want to draw more from fictional representations as they will be more familiar to your players. Also, the lurid fictional versions make for more horrific games. That said, keepers wanting verisimilitude may find inspiration in historical accounts, and we're going to look at some of those. In Keeping in Touch, an anthology of the Victorian seance, Megan Bruning simply defines a seance as a gathering of at least two people with the intent to contact the spirits of a deceased individual. That does seem very clinical. So you can't do a solo seance. Yeah. According to her. Mm. But are you ever really on your own if you believe in seances? <laughs> As we mentioned in the spiritualism episodes, the word séance itself comes from uh, the French term for a session. Mesmerists use this word to describe their experiments with animal magnetism and the sessions they use to conduct these experiments. This word then found its way through mesmerism into spiritualism, replacing what was the common term at the time, sitting. Does that mean you can have a séance ale? <laughs> Yes. So I think if you're going to have a, a seance as opposed to a session, you really do need to drink spirits rather than ale. And the stronger the better. As we mentioned in our earlier episodes, seances 
were entertainment for a lot of people. In her London Fortean Society lecture, Lisa Morton describes seances as being equal parts revivalist meeting, party and magic show. That sounds like a good night out. The Victorians did have a lot of things that they did for, for entertainment, which are quite different from what you see today. Well, they didn't have TV, Matt. Well, yeah, exactly. They didn't have Netflix. But things like party games and such were quite amusing. And some of the names they had, like a douche was a particular favourite, I remember, of reading up on that. Yeah, they didn't have role-playing games and they didn't have Netflix then. Well, I could live without one, but the other one, maybe not. Dark times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all you had to read was Dickens. Oh, fucking hell. I'm pretty sure other books were available, but yeah. Some participants were driven by a spirit of inquiry, wanting to see what mediumship was capable of, treating the various phenomena as tests or experiments. Interestingly, comparatively few accounts I could find mention attendees wanting to speak to a particular person or a departed loved one, for example. The spirits they spoke to were generally strangers and, more weirdly, generally from other cultures. Not always, but uh, they particularly seemed to latch on to spirits of Native Americans and black slaves, which just seems odd. And I I imagine Mm. if he did a... You know, some kind of academic examination of why this this was the case, it would end up being uncomfortably colonial. I just like the normal call you get in a horror film, I'm like, is someone in the house a doctor? In this case, it would be when you sat at the seance table. Does someone in the house know how to speak Swahili or Russian or uh, some <laughs> other language that never pops up in a game that no one's got anything more than 1% in? <laughs> And yet somehow they almost always spoke English, though we will see an exception to that in a moment. Also rare were attendees seeking specific information. There was a pretty strong distinction between mediums and fortune tellers. After William Stainton Moses merged spiritualism and Christianity, seances were carried out as part of religious services. This started around 1890 and grew throughout the 20th century. Congregations rarely refer to this part of the service as a seance, however, favouring the term receiving messages, in inverted commas. Also, they didn't have mobile phones to receive messages. (laughs) Yes. See what technology has done for us? The signal in this church is appalling. Yeah. They have a direct line to God, apparently, but... Though Thomas Edison had started work on a spirit telephone at some point in the early 20th century, this telephonic device that was meant to communicate with the the dead. What do you mean meant to? All you get is this guy called Harley Warren that picks up on the other end of the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go into other people's experiences with seances, have either of you two ever been to a seance? Nope. I mean, a kind of amateurish one, yeah. So what was your experience there like, Paul? I mean, it was a long time ago. We were at school and uh, around a friend's house one evening and, you know, as you do, or or apparently don't, had a seance. I don't really remember too much about it, to be honest. It wasn't very convincing. And, you know, we tried to sort of think of people that we could call up (laughs) and speak to. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of a short-lived affair, I suppose. Kind of a half-hearted thing. I went to a 
I was about to say a slightly more professional one, but certainly a more organized one some years back. A friend of a friend is a filmmaker, well, particularly for television, and he got interested in doing a ghost hunting show back when things like Most Haunted were really popular. And decided he wanted to film a pilot. And initially, the idea, I think, was filmed somewhere like Borley Rectory, but he didn't have the money to do that. And so what he ended up doing was getting a bunch of people he knew, including myself, to go around to his house for the weekend. And I should specify, his house is this fairly creepy old 17th century farmhouse in the middle of the Northamptonshire countryside. And he got us to, well, I mean, do all sorts of ghost hunting stuff with uh, low-light cameras and stuff like that. But one of the things that we did was the seance, and he'd hired two mediums for the weekend. And the group of us sat in this circle holding hands in this ruined outbuilding. It was late at night, it was cold, it was dark, and so very atmospheric. And we were sitting there in complete darkness with these uh, low-light cameras filming us. <laughs> I somehow managed to end up sitting right between the two mediums. And I was told afterwards that they couldn't use any of the footage they shot because I was basically laughing too much throughout the whole thing. And the reason was the medium who was sitting on my left was this this woman who decided to ramp up the seance at some stage by doing a riff on The Exorcist or something like that. She started writhing around in her seat and kind of leaning around and making growling animal noises in my ear and telling me she was going to eat my soul and stuff like that. Oh, brilliant. How the fuck are you supposed to take that seriously? Yeah. Offer her some hot sauce and say this might make it taste a bit better on the way down. My soul is spicy enough, Matt. <laughs> Seems weird having two mediums there, you know, don't they kind of cancel each other out? No, as we'll see from some of these accounts, two mediums was quite common. It boosts the signal, maybe. I thought they called it an understudy. So what are the different types of seances? Well, we'll break down seances into a few broad categories. First of all, we've got leader-assisted seances, then stage mediumship, and lastly, informal social seances. Okay, let's start with leader-assisted seances. So what is a leader-assisted seance? Well, this is by far the most common form of seance in Victorian times, as was established by the Fox Sisters, who see earlier episode if you're not familiar with the Fox Sisters. This was where a medium takes the lead, as in leader-assisted, and... They take the lead in conversing with the spirits and producing physical phenomena. As these are the type of seance gaslight investigators are most likely to encounter, this will be our main focus. You know, this is what we imagine, I think, generally hmm. with a seance. It's kind of what we see portrayed in film. There'll be some, you know, they'll call somebody in and they'll be very serious and they'll get everybody to sit around the table and hold hands or whatever. And then, you know, some weird shit will start to happen. I think, as we'll see shortly, serious may not be the adjective that you'll be using by the end of this. Serious. Dark horror. <laughs> These seances may take place in people's homes or in public places, such as in town halls or the premises of spiritualist or psychical organisations. 
An at-home seance might involve a half dozen sitters and one or two mediums. A public seance, on the other hand, may have dozens of attendees. Early on in the spiritualist movement, seances such as these were fairly simple affairs, relying on spirit rapping and maybe some voice mediumship. But as the movement developed, these phenomena became more and more elaborate. And yeah, again, go back to the earlier episodes if you want to hear what some of those things were. These were elements like moving lights, spirit faces, and the manipulation of physical objects. Many seances would begin with prayers or hymns. I guess... You know, religion was a more common thing back then. It was more prevalent. This was a tradition started by the Fox sisters, and the spirits would sometimes choose verses from Scripture to be read aloud. I think that's also something we see in the history of occultism in general. This Christian set dressing for a lot of mm. well, ritual magic for a start. But, you know, here with seances and so on, it's, it's almost like a, a defence against anyone who would accuse them of being satanic or ungodly. We can sort of say, oh, hang on, no, no, you know, we're starting with the hymns and prayers the whole time. This can't be satanic, this can't be necromantic. We're doing this in the name of God. So that would have... Well, it wouldn't have fixed any problems, but if Gygax had just thought to say, like, before you play D&D, just sing, you know, Onward Christian Soldiers or something, and then, you know, there'd be no satanic panic. But then he wouldn't have sold as many books if there hadn't been a satanic panic, so that would have really worked. <laughs> Bring on the satanic panic. Well, wasn't he a fairly devout Christian? I mean, that would have been entirely in keeping. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Private home seances were the most common form of a seance, with the host, or more commonly hostess, inviting a group of sitters for the evening and hiring a medium to guide them. The seance might be an event in itself, or after-dinner entertainment. Just what you need to wash down that bit about of indigestion. Let's raise the <laughs> dead. As we mentioned in the earlier episodes, spiritualism was very much a movement led by women. And these events, you know, the private ones and the public ones, not invariably, but were largely organised and hosted by women. Some hosts had dedicated seance rooms, while others simply used their parlour. A few seance rooms even contained spirit cabinets, as mentioned in our spiritualism episode. So one account from Catherine Berry's book describes her own seance room as seen through the eyes of a guest. Mrs. Berry led the way to an inner room, which she is happily able to appropriate to such meetings, furnished simply with chairs, a circular table, and a piano. From the room, light can be excluded by well-arranged curtains. Absence of light having, on the present occasion, been thus secured, after sitting a few moments, we had ordinary table sounds, then tiltings and levitations of the table, then detonations of the air, and finally warblings, as of birds. I like how the dead need musical accompaniment. Also, does your table make ordinary sounds or, <laughs> or weird sounds? Because my table just makes ordinary sounds. Uh, what, what sound is that? Depends on what corner of the room I put it in. Hmm. Uh, but, oh, we haven't even started with the musical stuff yet. No. But I like the warbling of birds. That's that's quite good. I've got that downstairs for free. You don't need to have a seance for that. <laughs> yeah, but they're not spirit birds. Where I'm from, the birds sing a pretty song. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The seance continued with people seeing these birds. 
Then a female spirit named Laura Honey, there's a stage name if ever there was one, <laughs> attempted to sing through Mr. Hearn, one of the mediums. The other medium, Mr. Shepherd, made guttural sounds, which he claimed was the speech of an Indian developing spirit. But well, you'd like photography? I don't know quite what that means. At the very least, I'm going to assume racism. <laughs> when Mr. Shepherd came out of the trance, he said he felt he had to go to the piano, and then through him was executed dance music. In brackets, no, not that kind. <laughs> The half-light enabled us to see that the other medium had glided into the open part of the room and was there going through intricate, agile and graceful dancing. Aye, aye, aye. So you're at this seance, the medium says that the spirit wants to move through him and play the piano. So he sits down at the piano, plays it, and then the other medium just starts dancing. And this is a seance. This is a seance. Evidently, they've been drinking too much out of that spirit cabinet. That's all I can say. I mean, you're getting your money's worth, right? Mm. The seance continued with spirit voices manifesting through a cardboard tube placed upon the table. One of these voices, of course, belonged to Napoleon. Sacre bleu. I mean, it goes without saying. After this... We obtained only strong manifestations, such as playful blows with the speaking tube, liftings and drivings of the table, detonations as by cracks of whips and shots of pistols, and so we adjourned. Playful blows of the speaking tube sounds like somebody's whacking them around the head with it. Yep. It yeah. is dark, right? So they it may is, be, yeah. and they're like, oh, I felt the spirits. They hit me <laughs> on the head. It's just so they're whacking them on the head with it. It's great. I love how your innocent little Brian went to that interpretation of it. I was just going to say getting blowed was always pleasurable in my experience, but fair enough. I think that would be a more expensive uh, <laughs> there, Matt. And the shots of pistols. Yeah. I'm wondering whether they actually did have a gun there. That's going to smell somewhat as well. And cracks of whips. Yeah, I know. The seance then broke for supper, although the table kept shaking and lifting throughout the meal. They didn't take the batteries out, haven't they? What? Through the meal? <laughs> that's going to be... That's no good. When they get round to the soup, it's the most awkward bit. Yeah. After the meal, the sitter spoke to Catherine of Aragon and Mary, <laughs> Queen of Scots. <laughs> I am Mary, Queen of Scots. Can I take you back to your choice of word earlier, Paul? Serious. Serious. <laughs> this is a serious seance. Well, um, nothing to say they don't take it seriously here. <laughs> I know. Mary, Queen of Scots, wasn't telling jokes. But this wouldn't be anywhere near as funny if they hadn't taken it seriously. Yeah. Another seance hosted by Mrs. Berry started with a short exhibition of her spirit drawings, which are really most surprising, the details of the drawings being exceedingly minute and accurate. I read a little snippet about Catherine Berry, and as well as being a spiritualist, she was known as an artist at the time. There was even an exhibition of her work down in Brighton in 1874, but this was all automatic drawing and painting, supposedly the spirits moving through her. Hmm. Also, it's not easy to make a living as an artist. You've got to supplement it with something. Oh, and it also helps having a gimmick. Yeah. 
Yeah. Go and see it because the spirits drew these, not Mrs. Berry. The seance continued with the participants holding hands around a table in the dark. One of the mediums again played a piano and invited the sitters to sing along. As they did so, a gruff spirit voice joined in with the singing. I can see Paul shaking his head. (laughs) (laughs) The seance grew more physical, with cardboard tubes floating and being flung around. The medium then attempted to play Mrs. Berry's arm like a piano while in a trance. The seance lasted for two hours and a half and impressed us with a belief that spiritualism is an absolute fact. That just needs an exclamation mark at the end of that. Wow. Our sitting being over only remained to return our thanks to our kind hostess for the very agreeable and intensely interesting evening she had afforded us. I mean, I think that's going to be pretty entertaining. Two and a half hours, you get a meal, you get some music, some dancing, you get hit on the head with a cardboard tube. You get played like a piano. That sounds better than some movies I've been to. (laughs) Or most movies, to be honest. Being beaten on the head with a cardboard tube is also much more entertaining than dancing for me. Well, something for everyone, really. But I like that all of that convinced the attendees that spiritualism is an absolute fact. (laughs) Yeah. Another one of Mrs. Berry's seances became even more physical. We sat at a small carved oak table. The lights were then put out. Loud raps were immediately heard. In a few minutes, a chair was very gently put on the table. Tremendous raps were then heard, followed by two loud shouts, and a peculiar noise hardly to be described. A very large hand was passed over my face, certainly a much larger hand than belonged to anyone present. Mrs. Berry was constantly touched about the face and head. A paper trumpet that lay on the table was taken up and remained suspended in the air, and through it came a sweet singing voice. The table was lifted in the air to the height of three feet, and the room thrown into the greatest confusion without any perceptible noise. Mrs. Berry felt a moisture come upon her, and the Reverend Mr. Dickerson had a similar experience. When a light was struck, it was found that a quantity of white froth. <laughs> I wondered if you'd be able to get through this. Okay, listeners, we may be here for a while. I think they've gone into the X-rated seance now. Seance after dark. And we're going to welcome you to envisage this as you wish. Just remember, the lights are out. Scott did also say it became even more physically, just neglected to mention the inverted commas over physical. Hmm. It was found that a quantity of white froth was on the body of Mrs. Berry's dress and a large splat upon the Reverend Mr. Dickerson's forehead. (laughs) I don't think we can say any more about this. It's absolute (laughs) fact is all I want to remind you, spiritualism. (laughs) And with that, I bid you good night. You've got to imagine these two mediums hosting the seance after everyone has gone home, or rather after they've gone home. Just the two of them pissing themselves and laughing. So, I, I, and then, then I threw white foam in his face, in the vicar's face. Can you believe it? And they paid us for this. I thought it was uh, both of them sat back with a cigarette laying back going, well, that was fun. How about you? 
<laughs> Amazing. Another of her seances took a more musical turn. We had a banjo, a zither, ooh, and table gong placed in the room. Mr. Hearn took his seat behind an easel covered with bays. No sooner were the lights extinguished than we were welcomed by Peter, who always now knocks at the door before he enters. Oh, a very polite ghost. After a little chat, he took up the zither and was charmed by that pretty little instrument, as he called it. We see this over and over again in these seances, that they are these musical affairs, and here, wide variety of instruments being played by the spirit. But I was also taken with this little detail, which I've never seen mentioned anywhere else, of Mr. Hearn being seated behind an easel covered with bays. So it's like this barrier that he's erected that I assume is there to allow him to commune with the spirits or whatever. But like all of these things, it's just providing that additional bit of obfuscation whereby you can do stuff without anyone seeing. And it's, I don't know, it's just so absolutely blatantly obvious that these accounts, yeah, they just boggle me. If only the theremin hadn't been invented, you know, a few <laughs> decades earlier, that would have been the perfect instrument for them oh, to play. Oh, God, yeah. Whenever I hear the mention of the zither, I always think of one of the adverts that accompanied the, I think it's the release of The Third Man, where the musician who played the Third Man theme tune on the mm. zither, uh, the tagline for the performance is like, he'll have you in a dither with his zither. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if Peter also managed to whip up the audience there into a dither. Or into a froth. Where this is. That's very strange. I mean, I will say that I, I am more enthusiastic to go to a seance now, having heard about these things, and I'm going to be quite disappointed if, you know, some of these things don't occur when I go. Hmm. I'd just be disappointed if the spirits of the dead didn't show up, but now if I don't get hit with white froth, I'm just thinking this is a complete con. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't care about the dead anymore. I just want, like, all the cool stuff. I just love the idea of seances having splash zones. Yeah. <laughs> You're issued with a uh, poncho when you go into these ones nowadays. <laughs> and we'll be back after a short break with more about public seances. Hello, this is Dave from the Frankenstein's Role-Playing Game podcast. We'd like you to listen to us. Well, because you hear things like this. Knock once for yes, twice for oh, no. How about that? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, yes, we can. Very faintly, but you're... You are quite quiet, though. Well, well, that's yeah, because it's over can here, because I keep forgetting that if you've got a microphone, you have to be somewhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost like sound is a, is a physical thing. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to intimidate you guys and make you feel that you're dealing with a professional. So if this is the level of professionalism you're looking for in podcasts, then please do come and join us. The Frankenstein's RPG podcast where we try the truly Herculean task of stitching together the ultimate role-playing game, and by ultimate, we're using it in its very broadest sense, Frankenstein's RPG podcast, available on all good podcast networks. Come and find us. Have you visited our Redbubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and today we're talking about seances in Victorian Britain. Barry also discusses the public seances she organised at the Spiritual Institution in London throughout 1870. She was initially disheartened, finding them, quote, unproductive of spiritual phenomena. No white froth. Many of the seances were attended by 20 or 30 investigators. That's a big game. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and sometimes the number mounted to between 30 and 40. Why didn't she just say between 20 and 40? Anyway, <laughs> the various magnetic and spiritual influences to which I was thus subjected at times affected my sensitive organism to a painful degree. That's how I talk about myself when I'm in discomfort. My sensitive organism was suffering to a painful degree. Uh, what? Yes. Maybe that's how they talk back then. But I do like that they refer to the attendees of the seances, and they do this all the way through, particularly with the public seances, as investigators. Yeah. That just rides itself. Was the seance leader called the keeper? <laughs> Should have been. The keeper of arcane foam. <laughs> We've left the foam behind now, Matt. Move on. I know, quite sticky. <laughs> so these public events were ticketed with members of the public paying a fee to take part. Despite this, they were extremely popular, so much so that Mr. Hearn eventually had to place a limit of 14 sitters on his own seances, as apparently larger groups interfered with the phenomena of the spirit voices. No one got enough screen time is what you're saying, that just trying to handle mm. a table that big, too many players. Yeah. Needed a caller. Mm. <laughs> what do you think a medium is, Paul? They're a caller for the spirits. Well, you can't be GM and caller. That'd be just like... Well, maybe the spirits are the GM and the medium is the caller. All the spirits are the GM now. Yeah. That's a hell of a game. Mm. Berry describes one of the more successful public seances. The company numbered about 15, 12 of whom took their seats at the table in the back drawing room. Presently, the lights were lowered, and almost immediately after the table began to vibrate, while the hand and arm of a gentleman were violently shaken, contorted, and made at times utterly rigid. He continued to be so used during the sitting. Yeah, it definitely sounds like he had a fantastic time. <laughs> Enjoying himself. Just that description of his arm being made at times utterly rich. I mean, it sounds like he was having a seizure during this and everyone just incorporated it into the seance. Well, I think we know what Mrs. Berry is on about there. <laughs> oh, God, more white foam. I was just thinking strychnine poisoning personally, but fair enough. That could be... <laughs> Spirit voices played a large part in these public seances. One of the voices professed to be that of Bluff Harry, sent on a mission of usefulness to earthly mortals. He was not so much disposed to joke on the subject as to warn the investigators of the necessity of moral rectitude in this life as a means of happiness and progress in the next. A second spirit voice, much more loudly impressive, screamed a sort of vengeful howl calculated at once to convince sceptics that disembodied spirits not only exist, but can speak audibly to mortals in the flesh in such a manner as to defy ventriloquism to imitate the voices. 
but also in a tone to convince mortals that hellish hate and passion animate some of the souls that rise from the grave or from the mortal body in a state of animal ferocity and willfulness. That's a long sentence. Mm. <laughs> so, Bluff Harry. <laughs> yeah. That's a great name, isn't it? How did they determine that name? That, but that's a good NPC name. And I think we need more NPC spirits because that's, that's mm. something you could have quite a few of. Yeah. And, and here, they literally come down to give the investigators some clues. Indeed. Well, Bluff Harry is here to convince the investigators of the necessity of moral rectitude. And let's face it, that's something most investigators do need lessons in. Yeah, we all need that. But it's that other spirit, that other spirit that just screams and howls in a hateful way. I don't know whether that was just the medium getting frustrated with these public seances and, and letting it all out, but it sounds like it must have been actually quite frightening. You said this was only going to be a couple of hours, and I've been here for three! I'm not going to pay <laughs> extra for this! Ah! <laughs> and... Our old friend Spirit Rapping also played a part in these seances. Spirit Rapping, there's another NPC name right there. <laughs> That's their name, Spirit Rapping. Back to the music. A tag team with Bluff Harry. The first indication of Spirit Presence, so it is called, was a series of raps on the table in answer to questions having reference to the position of the sitters, which appears to be of importance, seeing as the circle resembles a magnetic battery which will not work unless properly, that is scientifically, arranged. A short prayer was then offered, and the company, or rather the strangers present, awaited the coming of the spirits with bated breath. I love the idea that you've got to sit the people round the table scientifically so they create the right kind of magnetic battery. Yeah. A reporter from the Daily Telegraph provided a slightly more sceptical view of Mrs. Berry's seances. Sounds like my kind of person here. On the arrival of the medium, we took our seats around an oval table extinguished the light, and waited for results. We had not long to exercise our patience. The circle was declared to be a harmonious one, and the more clairvoyant of its constituents began to see spirit lights, occasionally of a red colour, which we were told indicated strength. We ordinary mortals saw nothing of this, but were first made aware of spiritual presence by insane gyrations of the table which finally tilted over, and in obedience to the laws of gravitation, and without regard to the toes of the semicircle, came down with a bump. <laughs> the phrasing of these sentences is great. I don't know, the, insa the insane gyrations of the table and the uh, obedience to the laws of gravitation. And I just love that the main concern there is crushing the toes of the participants. Mm. I wonder how many people were actually injured in seances like this, where people would dicky around with tables and other heavy objects. They should put a disclaimer on the adverts to say, please come with steel toe-cap shoes and a poncho. An attendee of one of Leah Fox's seances reported that the spirits patted his feet and pulled his trouser leg under the table, as by a human hand. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Leah's spirit guide, Jesse Hutchinson, then communicated through rapping 
even beating out a march and providing a beat for the participants as they sang. <laughs> Again, we've got the musical aspect of this. Hmm. It didn't seem to be a seance without a song or someone playing a musical instrument. Yeah. But again, that's the kind of thing that, I don't know, almost seems comical, too comical to really take seriously in the seance. That you, You've got this spirit who's turned up, is communicating through rapping. You're asking all the yes, no, or I don't know questions. They're knocking in response. And then it starts turning into a beat. And your medium says, oh, that's the cue for us to sing along. Yeah. A report of one of Francis Monk's seances from the 1870s, conducted with fellow medium Mrs. Everett, shows how some of the phenomena had become more elaborate. Once again, the seance began with hymns and prayers, as well as the reading of scripture. Mrs. Everett called upon one of her spirit friends, called Nippy, who raised up the cloth of the table and touched the hands of participants. Unlike earlier spirit wrappings, Nippy communicated through lights, Flashing his answers in the darkness, he then manifested the odours of various perfumes. Sounds like this guy's got one hell of a box of um, props <laughs> under the table with him. We talked in the earlier episodes about all these different phenomena that the mediums manifested. And in Mrs. Berry's book that we've been quoting from before, she does go into a lot of these things. Like I said, there are 200 pages of accounts in that, and you know, I just picked out a few favourites. But she goes into details of the spirits manifesting perfumes, all these exotic odours and dark corridors in houses that you go down and you see all the spirit faces lunging out at you and the jumping lights and so on, and, and the manifestation of fruit that we talked about before. That turns up in, in this as well. And these are all things that as we saw in the previous episodes, are very obviously just bits of prestidigitation and trickery. But she was absolutely captivated by them. In the case of Mrs. Berry, I find that particularly astonishing because she herself was a medium. But she seemed to be one of that perhaps a rarer type of medium who wasn't necessarily trying to trick anyone. She really seemed to believe all this stuff and she was trying to manifest the spirits herself, but then worked with a lot of mediums who very much were, oh yeah, let's let's make spirit faces and and mm. shoot guns and speak like Napoleon and Because everybody knew what Napoleon spoke like. <laughs> Well, he was speaking in French, he he obviously had to be Napoleon. Oh, yeah. He was speaking in French, be. Paul. I mean, yeah. who else would be speaking French except Napoleon? It does make me wonder, obviously this lady writing this believes in it, or, or at least purports to believe in it in the mm. book. But what's the common perception, I suppose? Because, you know, I'm thinking all these people are going along and apparently being entertained and having a good time. And we're almost viewing it that, well, they all believed that it was real. Obviously, they didn't all, but mm. the common thing was that it was real. I mean, in 100 years, somebody might be saying, oh, well, you know, looking at Buckingham and uh, not that they're going to be studying me, but, you know, mm. somebody like me. Well, he went on the ghost train on the funfair in, in Buckingham and he loved it. Well, I did. But, I mean, I didn't think they were actual ghosts. Yeah. But was I going on some sort of spiritual journey on an electrified rail to meet the dead? And people have these strange experiences and come out changed. Well, no, we just thought it was 
nobody thought it was actual ghosts, right? It was just entertainment. So I'm just wondering what the sort of general populace made of these uh, events. The general populace, sure, but here we got people who are writing about investigations and tests and mm. presenting these things like scientific experiments. Sure. If you went on a ghost train and then wrote about your experience as if you had been an explorer traveling into the spirit realm and documenting the various phenomena you saw in scientific terms, that would be very different than, you know, you just going on the ghost train for fun. Hmm. But that's what I'm wondering, like, were most people just seeing it as fun? Yeah, it is difficult to tell because obviously the accounts are being written by the people who were passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. Either because they really believed in it and were taken up with this spirit of inquiry or because they saw that it was absolute bullshit and were wanting to debunk it. Yeah. And so the people who were ambivalent about it or you know just saw it as a bit of fun probably didn't write about it. No. Monk then levitated his chair. The spirits removed his boots and then threw them through the air. One of the spirits, Sam, then requested that the participants tie up an accordion with string before playing the accordion in the darkness. Finally, Sam requested that the participants tie Monk to his chair. The rope was then swiftly removed by the spirits and tied into intricate knots. Knots no human could have tied. Well, no living human. <laughs> what does that mean if you're a dead sailor? Do you tie the best knots in the afterlife? <laughs> There's an account from an electrical engineer who was uh, a spiritualist as well called Cromwell Fleetwood Varley, and he wrote that participating in seances led to a tremendous loss of energy. It must be producing all that white foam. And he also mentioned that when these phenomena were about to begin, any dogs present would howl, bark, or hide under chairs. Everyone's a critic. Well, they'd been there before. They knew what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, they knew that someone was about to shoot a gun off and make loud noises. And yeah, they're probably terrified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, they're doing that shit again. <laughs> He just says tremendous loss of energy. I'm thinking he must be an introvert because all that uh, <laughs> energy that's expelled now mm. to interact with these spirits, yeah, it's pretty draining. It does sound quite hard work. But as I mentioned, that book from Mrs. Berry, which I will link to from the show notes, is absolutely packed with, I mean, pages after pages after pages of these accounts. And we really are just scratching the surface here. They are profoundly inspirational if you want to put weird shit like this into your game. You could pick any one of those accounts mm. and just riff on it. And I imagine your players will be talking about that for a long time afterwards. Yeah, and also I think if you were going to write about a seance, you probably, without studying this stuff, you probably would make it more mundane mm. than this stuff that actually went on. Because... I don't know, I just wouldn't think to make this stuff up. Yeah. You know? But then when you read about it, it's like, they did what? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's just like, <laughs> it's crazy stuff. But I guess by incorporating that, I don't know, does it make it feel more 
convincing or not. It, it makes it feel more interesting, I think. Yeah. I, when we see seances like this in media, they very much tend to be presented, I think, in terms of, well, the... the the basic physical layout of people sitting around holding hands in, in the gloom or in the dark, I mean, that's there. But hmm. then they, I think when you see them in horror fiction, tend to focus very much on voice mediumship or spirit boards, which we'll probably mention yeah. in a moment. But yeah, like you say, you don't tend to see references to the other phenomena. Also, you said... You normally see them in the dark. You don't see them in the dark. It might be dim lighting mm. in films, but films require light. Yeah, true. Yeah, so the idea of them actually doing it in the dark didn't occur to me. Mm. So not until I read about this stuff that I'm like, oh, it was dark. I mean, that's going to make, <laughs> I would think, make the medium's life a hell of a lot easier. In some of these accounts, Mrs. Berry talks about how they'd occasionally get bits of light in because mm. either people would strike matches or light tapers, or you'd get people coming in and out and opening the door and you get light from another room that would allow you to see stuff. But sure. yeah, apart from that, yeah, they, they were doing these things completely blind. If you're in a dark room with other people, that's a strange situation to be in. Mm. Yeah, an oddly intimate one, I think. Also common in media is the stage mediumship seance. Rather than a traditional sitting, this involves the medium standing on a stage and working with audience members, much like a mentalist act. And there's a reason why it's much like a mentalist act. <laughs> Funny that. So it's here we're having cold readings and things like that, if they're like interacting with the audience. Yeah, this is something we see an awful lot in media. In fact, in our next episode, we're going to hmm. see a film where this kind of thing is depicted. Yeah. I'd say that unlike the other types of seances we've discussed so far, these are the ones where people would go along and they'd want to communicate with specific spirits. They'd go there because they'd lost someone. Maybe it isn't even that they wanted to speak to a dead loved one. Maybe they did want some kind of fortune telling or learn something about themselves. But this isn't the sort of spirit of inquiry that we saw with the other seances. Though, you know, I think in a lot of cases, it's probably equally entertainment. And I think having the crowd kind of lends itself to that kind of hypnotism and cold reading kind of acts. Because you've got a big mm. group of people to sample from and you can find like the more suggestive individuals in the group. Yeah, and you get to use shotgunning. Yeah, it seems to be one of the skills that such people use. Another horror movie staple is the informal social seance, where a group of peers attempt to contact spirits without any one person taking the role of medium. While they might resemble the private seances we've discussed, no one is specifically guiding events. These may also involve using some form of spirit board. So when you were talking about that seance that you were involved with as a kid, Paul, I assume this, this was the kind of thing you were talking about. Was there any one person who said, oh, actually, I'll talk to the spirits, or were you all just sitting there holding hands equally trying to contact? I'm trying to remember now. It's, it's quite a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the main thing I remember is uh, it was quite bright. So um, my mate Brian, like we were in his bedroom and he dimmed the light in, but he hadn't got a dimmer switch. So he just put like a cloth over the lamp, but that turned out to be his old underpants. 
um, which was quite a disturbing sight, actually, having them illuminated from inside. But they covered in white foam. They weren't, you know, fresh. As long as it wasn't a UV light that was being used, that's the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I have had another experience. I didn't stop there. This was some years later. And there were three of us, and we did you know, have the glass and the, I don't know, like a Ouija board, I think a homemade Ouija board. We were our students and it was like the early hours of the morning and, you know, it did seem to work and we all knew each other pretty well. And we were all convinced that neither one of us were moving the glass, but you get mm. that whole sympathetic movement thing. Exactly. Yeah. But the weird thing was it did seem to work. It did seem to, I think we were all a little bit freaked out. Maybe we all kind of bought into it, but didn't really buy into it. But then nobody ever spoke of it again. Like the next day, I think we got the bus into Wakefield or something, didn't talk about it. And then nobody ever spoke of it again. That was it. Yeah. It's kind of one of those weird things. And I've witnessed that before with kind of strange things happening that everybody almost <laughs> sweeps it under the mental carpet. I've used a Ouija board as well. In fact, the same weekend where we did that seance, we did a, a Ouija thing as well. And... I'd never used one before, but I had read about the Diamoto effect, which is supposedly how these things work, where everyone unconsciously hmm. moves the, the planchette around without actually meaning to. And I was skeptical about how that worked. But yeah, I mean, sure enough, every one of us swore blind afterwards that we weren't consciously moving the planchette. But yeah. it did start spelling stuff out. I mean, the stuff that it spelled out was absolute bullshit. Not even outlandish bullshit. It was just dull and a bit incoherent. But there was that creepy feeling that, oh, hang on, no, this is moving and it's spelling stuff out. So... Hmm. From that point of view, it was a really interesting experience. Yeah. I'd really recommend, if you haven't tried doing something like this, do it just for that experience of, of how it works. I'm not sure that good friends can be recommended people undertake occult practices. <laughs> you know, we can't be responsible for people's safety. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, no, no. I'm sorry if, if we haven't talked to you into summoning demons by this stage. We've failed. I haven't used a Ouija board, but I do own one. Well, I say own one, and the one being inverted commas here. As I want to do, I back a lot of Kickstarters, and when oh, of course, and when a particular <laughs> Kickstarter turned up for a Cthulhu talking board with a wonderful illustration of this wooden engraved amazing Ouija board and this wonderful planchette with Cthulhu's head with a gap in the middle of it, <laughs> I thought, hey, this is fucking amazing! I can use this as a great prop, and. My immense and utter disappointment when this box turned up finally after God knows how long of waiting for it to finally manifest. It turned up. The planchette was okay, even though it was kind of maybe like a resin cast or it basically didn't, it didn't feel very great quality. Yeah, that so-called fucking talking board was made of cardboard. I was like, oh, fucking hell. I, I was mm. under the impression I was getting something that was wooden and that looked decent. And it's <laughs> sat on the top of my bookcase ever since in disgust. It's interesting that you you mentioned it being called a talking board there. People know the name Ouija because, well, that's what we've come to know them as. But that is actually a trademarked name. It's been around for donkey's years. It's older than I thought. I, I thought Ouija boards were a 20th century thing. But apparently they've been around since the 1880s. Mm. And 
they started out as a, a variant of the classic spirit board. I mean, this sort of ties in with what we were talking about in previous episodes with spirit wrapping and so on, where they're just different ways of basically pointing to the letters of the alphabet and spelling stuff out. Mm. But, you know, with spirit boards, you either have a board with letters written on it like a classic Ouija board, or maybe you have glasses or something with letters of the alphabet arranged around and, you know, move a planchette between those or something like that. But there's, there's any number of ways you can do that. But the Ouija board particularly then got developed into a board game around 1901 and has been put out as, as a board game, as a family entertainment ever since. And that's what it started as. It started yeah. as a parlor game. I mean, it's sort of tied in with the spiritualist movement, but these were always seen as entertainment. And that goes to my question earlier about, you know, how people actually viewed this stuff. And it does seem, it was, wasn't it published by Waddington's or something? Parker Brothers, I think, yeah. So that seems like it was, yeah, they didn't have Monopoly yet. Yeah. So they got like a Ouija board. <laughs> but today, I mean, can you imagine that being put out today? They still do. Do yeah. they still put it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if they were putting it out for the first time today... I don't know. I mean, it, it would catch a certain market, but it would also enrage an awful lot of people, you know, demon worship. And I don't think they were seen as being sinister until probably The Exorcist. I think The Exorcist, in terms of popular culture, was that turning point where you had the presentation of the Ouija board and that as being this means through which an unsuspecting young girl made contact with the demonic spirit and got herself possessed. But mm. prior to that, yeah, it really was a parlour game. Yeah. And I still think some people would say that is more preferable to playing Monopoly because that shit breaks up families. <laughs> oh, I mean... If you ever want to fall down a real rabbit hole, look up the history of Monopoly. <laughs> the history of Monopoly is fascinating. And how no one ever plays it right because no one reads the rules. Yeah. <laughs> but it started out as a game called The Landlord Game that was meant to teach people about the fundamental problems of, with capitalism mm. and ended up being turned into this, well, capitalist fucking nightmare. So how might we use seances in our games? Have any of us ever actually portrayed a seance in a game? You know, has it featured in any of our games? I've played in ones where it has, and I know that uh -huh. there's also an entry in the Grand Grimoire about how you can use spells Ooh. to perform seances. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is Spirit Summoning on page 172, which costs variable magic points, 1d4 san, and a casting time of 1d4 rounds. But it has alternate names like seance commune with the dead spiritualism and channeling so it pretty much does exactly what you think it's going to do and that does what it says is it it's like you're calling up a spirit of a deceased person the first three words pretty much summarize the whole thing contacts the dead but hopefully like was it speak to the dead in the in the D and D film? That's a great scene by the way if you haven't seen it <laughs> oh god yes oh i'd love that was that one of the questions? Yes. <laughs> <That's brilliant. laughs> Was that another one? Yes. Uh, <laughs> that didn't count though, did it? Yes. 
I mean, I think my feeling with that is that in a Lovecraftian universe, it sort of feels like humans shouldn't have a spirits because we're yeah. very much sort of in a Lovecraftian take. It's like humans aren't important. They don't have an afterlife. But equally, I think in the game you're playing, in that story, if you want to have, you know, the dead coming back and speaking to you, well, you know, knock yourself out. That's fine. Maybe you're somehow providing a connection to the dreamlands or something like that and contacting yeah. dreamers and the spirits of dead dreamers there. Maybe they're not even what we would call the dead. It's just like an, a psychic echo that's left behind, that it's yeah. not actually them. It's more like a carbon copy of what was once alive. I mean, you've got the whole... Um plethora of things that it could be that you're contacting you know so the obvious one is is the spirit of the dead you know you're contacting some deceased person and they're giving you some information or, or whatever that might be but then again like you say matt what else might that be so it might mm. be mythos entities it might be somebody who's alive but dreaming it might be any number of things right it could be it's just, but it's a great vehicle for contacting purposefully contacting something other something from yeah. beyond and that's what we always want in a scenario is to some link between the mundane world and the other and that's a, it's a good vehicle for doing that i think i think the the scenario that i remember that feature seance had the person who was leading it ultimately possessed by a being that was not too dissimilar from a yithian but was actually from a uh, a different story from the mythos a different short story mm -hmm. But yeah, a race that I hadn't encountered up until that point. So that was uh, very much a yeah. uh, discovery for me as a player and then finding, oh yeah, this stuff was actually out there and not just created for the scenario. And I think one of the things that makes a seance so effective in a game like that is it's a specific thing that the player characters, assuming they're all taking part in the seance, are doing to try to make contact with something from beyond whether it's a spirit or whether they know that it's something mythos related, but it makes it an active thing on their part. It's something that they're doing to make this happen, mm. as opposed to them just being passive observers or, or victims of something that's going on. But after everything that we've been through in this episode, if I were going to run a seance in a gaslight game now, I would clearly start it with a musical number, have a few loud gunshots go off, and then end the seance with the lights coming up and everyone covered in white foam. I mean, that's the real horror, isn't it? Mental note, bring lots of dodge skill to the table and a poncho. And a cardboard tube to hit Scott with. Mm. <laughs> that goes without saying. No game is complete without one. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Thanks very much going out to Ben. And also thank you much to the singular Dustin. And thank you to James the Scion. And thank you to Matthew C. McHorris. And thank you much to Ronald Lewis. And thank you to the Velvet Ant. 
And thanks to Adam. And thank you very much to David Scarlett. And thank you to Dennis LeBlanc. And thanks to Thomas Mall. And thank you very much to Catherine Taylor. And thank you to Johan Englund. Thanks to Martin Cass. I like this one. <laughs> yes. And thank you much to the, the wonderfully named Super Humble Emperor God King. And thank you to Alejandro Conteras. And thanks to Poncho the Cactus. <laughs> hey, want to know here? Thank you much to Thomas Bailey. Hello, Thomas. And thank you to Michael Spicer. And finally, thank you to Bill Henderson. And if we have completely mangled any of your names, do please let us know and we'll make amends. And if you are enjoying the good friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found, letting like-minded people know about it on social media, or just shouting it through your spirit trumpet. I was going to say, try and tap it on Morse code under, underneath a table during the middle of a seance. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Come in. I had to clean all this foam off.